Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Christy Hofer, and I will be your host today. I am ASHP's Senior Director of Scientific Projects in Educational Programs. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Jamie McConaughey and Dr. Monica Dougherty about questions that pharmacists receive about managing atopic dermatitis. Dr. McConaughey is Associate Professor of Pharmacy at Duquesne University School of Pharmacy in Pittsburgh, and Dr. Dougherty is Clinical Pharmacy Specialist at the University of Rochester Medical Center in New York. They are both faculty for an educational initiative entitled Jack Inhibitors and the Changing Landscape for Atopic Dermatitis and Alopecia Areata Management. The educational initiative is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer Incorporated. This podcast is for informational purposes and is not approved for continuing education credit. Thanks for joining us today and let's get started. Jamie. To set the stage, please remind us how atopic dermatitis is typically diagnosed, including what are some of its key hallmarks? Sure, absolutely. So the diagnosis of atopic dermatitis is made clinically, and it's based on features that the patient presents with, the typical morphology of atopic dermatitis, the distribution of the lesions, as well as associated clinical signs. So there's no real lab tests or anything like that that are necessary for diagnosis. Rather, it's just based on observation as well as getting a thorough patient history. The most common set of diagnostic criteria that we have come from the American Academy of Dermatology, and they include that the patient needs to have at least one feature that we consider an essential feature, and that would be either the presence of pruritus or eczema. And that eczema can be either acute, subacute, or chronic. And then to add strength to that diagnosis, other important features should be present as well, although they're not necessary for the diagnosis. So those important features include things like an early age of onset of the disease, a personal or family history of atopy, immunoglobulin E reactivity, or the presence of xerosis. Thanks. Monica, please tell us about your practice and how often you encounter patients with atopic dermatitis. Yeah, so I work as a clinical pharmacy specialist with the University of Rochester Specialty Pharmacy. So my clinical areas that I focus in on are atopic dermatitis, severe asthma, as well as allergy patients. I work really closely with our dermatology clinics to help educate and monitor patients with atopic dermatitis, mainly on more advanced therapies, which are typically specialty medications. So currently, I follow over 300 patients with atopic dermatitis, and I'm responsible for their education regarding their advanced therapy as well as monitoring them while they're on these therapies. So I check in with patients routinely anywhere from every month to every six months, but they can also call me anytime or my chart me anytime they have a question about their medicine or their disease state. So I essentially find myself talking about atopic dermatitis all day long for the most part. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us today. <laughs> How have you seen the treatment of atopic dermatitis change and evolve over the last decade? 
Yeah, so over the last decade, several more advanced therapies that have a much better side effect profile and a more specific mechanism of action have been approved. So in the past, patients that had failed their topical therapies and or phototherapy didn't really have many good options. We were treating more moderate to severe AD with broader systemic immunomodulators like cyclosporin, methotrexate, azathioprine, and mycophenolate. None of these medicines are actually FDA approved for AD, and some of them really don't actually have the best clinical evidence or the strongest clinical evidence. Many of these also have a lot of side effects, including increased risk for infections, effects on liver and renal function, and increases in blood pressure, just to name a few. Luckily, over the past six years or so, we've had much better medications to treat our patients, and they have more specific mechanisms of action. First, we had dupilumab that was approved for AD in 2017. Dupilumab is a monoclonal antibody that works as an interleukin-4 and interleukin-13 inhibitor. So interleukin-4 and interleukin-13 are type 2 helper T-cell cytokines, which are drivers of the inflammation process that's thought to be responsible for the symptoms of AD. It binds specifically to the interleukin-4-alpha subunit on these interleukins, and it interrupts their signaling and halts the drivers of inflammation. So essentially, it's working exactly where the process of the inflammation is. We also now have trelokinumab, which was approved a little over a year ago, and it works similarly to dupilumab. It works by binding to the IL-13, thus inhibiting its signaling and the release of those inflammatory players. Last year as well, there was a slew of Janus kinase inhibitors approved for AD, So we now have oral abrocitinib, oral epidocitinib, and topical rexolitinib. So the JAK-STAT pathway is involved in the signaling of several cytokines that drive the inflammatory process in AD. Abrocitinib inhibits JAK1, while epidocitinib and rexolitinib inhibit JAK1 and 2. So overall, there's many more options and therapies with great evidence now for the treatment of more moderate to severe AD. In the nearly five years that I've been working with atopic dermatitis patients, we're actually seeing way less patients now that have been on cyclosporin or methotrexate in the past. And now when we get a new patient that has failed their topical therapies, they're much more likely to be able to jump right to a more advanced therapy. So that's been really great for patients, especially being in a pandemic. Nobody wants to start a medicine that can suppress their immune system. It's a good point. Thank goodness that there are more therapies coming out. Jamie, we often think about atopic dermatitis as a disease affecting pediatric patients. Are there any new therapies that can be used for them? Sure. So that is a great question because you're absolutely correct. We see the majority of cases of atopic dermatitis diagnosed in younger patients and then continue on through adulthood. Monica just listed a lot of our newer medications that are approved for atopic dermatitis, but there's a smaller sampling that can be used in children. Although recently we have seen some of these that have been on the market have new approvals for younger patients. So going back a little bit, this isn't as recent, but historically we had the topical calcerinin inhibitors. Those were approved between 2000 and 2001 that can be used in children. In 2016, we had crisoboral approved, 
And that was approved in 2016 for atopic dermatitis. In March of 2020, it received its approval for ages three months and up with mild to moderate atopic dermatitis. And I feel like that's significant because a lot of times our newer medications or our newer approvals are for moderate to severe disease. So being able to have this treatment option in younger patients, even with mild disease, is a great option. Monica had mentioned some of our JAK inhibitors and went over their mechanism of action. So we have, as she said, rexalitinib, which is topical, apatacitinib, which is oral, and abracitinib, which is oral. So just to talk about the age ranges where these can each be used. So rexalitinib is currently approved for patients that are 12 years and older, but there are current ongoing trials right now in patients ages two through less than 12 years. So hopefully we will see that one receive an approval for younger age ranges. Upadacitinib is currently approved for ages 12 and above, and that was just approved last year in January of 2022. So we have our adolescents and older. And then similarly, abracitinib also is approved for ages 12 and older. And that was the most recent in February of this year. It was approved for adults last year and then received the younger age approval in February of 2023. Looking at other options outside of the JAK inhibitors, we have our interleukin blockers. So again, you heard Monica just mentioned some of these. So dipilimab and tralokinumab, which are both sub-Q injections. We don't have quite as many studies of these in children and sometimes they're not the, the first treatment option, depending on how the parent or the child feels about injections, but we do have options for younger patients with these. And honestly, on the flip side of things, sometimes we have patients that don't do well with topical medications and are not adherent to those. So these can be a great alternative in those situations. So dupilumab is currently approved for ages six months and older. So we have a very young age range there. And over the years, we've seen the FDA-approved age range for that drop. So it started out in adults, then we saw it 12 to 17, then 6 to 11. And then just last year, they received that approval in six months and up with uncontrolled moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. Tralokinumab that Monica mentioned is currently only approved in adults. But we do have, again, additional ongoing studies and something that we may see change in the future. You both mentioned that several JAK inhibitors were approved for atopic dermatitis just last year. Where do they fall within the treatment cascade? And are there concerns regarding the black box warnings and side effects? Yeah, so as we kind of both mentioned, upadacitinib, abrocitinib, and topical rexolitinib were all approved roughly last year or a little longer than that. They're actually originally supposed to be approved a few years back, but the safety concerns kind of held them back for a while. Topical rexalitinib is more so indicated for mild to moderate atopic dermatitis, so not as much for our more severe patients. This can certainly be a good next option for patients that might not want to start an injectable medicine once they fail other treatments or if they're concerned with any of the side effects of a systemic medication. When thinking about our oral JAK inhibitors, overall, these medications are very effective. For abrocitinib, when looking at if patients achieve clear or mostly clear skin, 24 to 36% of patients in the 100 milligram group and 44 to 47% of patients in the 200 milligram group achieve this clear or mostly clear skin versus 8 to 14% in placebo. 
with upadacitinib in the 50 milligram group, 39 to 48%, and in the 30 milligram group, 52 to 62% of patients achieve clear or mostly clear skin compared to 5 to 11% in placebo. So these medications are very, very effective. And for somewhat of a comparison, in dupilumab clinical trials, about 36 to 39% of patients achieve clear or mostly clear skin. So it's possible that JAK inhibitors might be a bit more efficacious than dupilumab or tralucinumab, but because of their safety concerns, dupilumab or tralucinumab are typically more first line when thinking of a more advanced treatment over the JAK inhibitors. So if patients are failing topicals or phototherapy, we typically choose a biologic first. And then if they fail at least one of those biologics at that time, we would start thinking about our oral JAK inhibitors as an appropriate next step. This is what we're kind of seeing in practice, and it also aligns with what insurances have been preferring as well. Then kind of thinking about the black box warning and the side effects with JAK inhibitors. So as many people might be aware of, roughly in 2021, the FDA came out with a black box warning on JAK inhibitors. So they concluded that there's an increased risk for serious heart-related events, such as heart attack or stroke, cancer, blood clots, and death. So this warning was based off of the oral surveillance trial, which was actually a safety endpoint trial looking at rheumatoid arthritis patients that were over 50 years of age with a cardiovascular risk factor that were taking either tofacitinib or a TNF inhibitor. So they did find a higher incidence of MACE, which would include death from CVD causes, non-fatal MI or non-fatal stroke and a higher incidence of cancers in the tofacitinib groups compared to the TNF inhibitor group. So because of this, the FDA placed the black box warning on all of JAKs, even though this was specifically seen in tofacitinib. It's unclear right now kind of how to apply this study to our patients with AD since the study was specifically completed in older adults and they all had RA and a CVD risk factor. So we really need more information on the specific risks for our patients that have atopic dermatitis taking a JAK inhibitor. And hopefully with more patients starting these medications, we'll be able to get some more clarity and context. So right now with JAK inhibitors, Based off of this study, we're typically not using them as often in older adults or those with cardiovascular disease risk factors or, of course, a history of cancer. But if patients are younger and otherwise healthy, this is a great next step for patients. Speaking of otherwise healthy patients, pharmacists often get asked questions about patients who are pregnant or lactating. And what do we know about advanced treatments in these patients? Yes. So this is a great question and definitely something that patients may turn to their pharmacist to ask about. Unfortunately, with a lot of these advanced therapies, they are not recommended in pregnancy. To look specifically at each one, so starting with dupilumab, it is a humanized monoclonal antibody of IgG4. And IgG antibodies are known to cross the placenta. So fetal exposure is really dependent upon that IgG subclass and maternal serum concentrations, as well as newborn birth weight, gestational age, et cetera. There's several factors that go into that. But because of that known crossing of the medication 
into the placenta, the recommendation really is to weigh the risk benefit of initiating therapy versus not. There are case reports, but they show no risk of dupilumab in pregnancy. But again, the overall recommendation is the risk benefit weight. Something else to consider, not only with this medication, but really with any medication that you're considering in pregnancy is to check a registry that one of the ones that I know we've talked about in previous presentations is the mother to baby registry. And that website is just mothertobaby.org. And you can type the medication name on there and it'll come out with a fact sheet. They have a healthcare professional section as well as a patient-friendly language section that sort of explains whether or not each medication could be used in pregnancy. And dupilumab is one of the medications listed on that website for additional information. Another advanced therapy that has sort of a similar recommendation is going to be tralicinumab. There's not, again, enough information really to rule out the risk. Again, it is a humanized monoclonal antibody of IgG4, so exactly the same thing that I just mentioned about dupilumab, that it does cross the placenta. And again, this is another one that is listed on that registry. If patients needed more information, if they were potentially considering this medication and wanted to talk to their healthcare provider about that. If we move into our JAK inhibitors, so looking at apatacitinib and baricitinib, there is potential risk to the fetus. And even with regards to taking this medication while considering becoming pregnant, it is not recommended. So before the medications are started, it is recommended to evaluate any pregnancy status and patients who could become pregnant should use an adequate contraception while on these medications and for four weeks after finishing the last dose. So the JAK inhibitor is currently not recommended during pregnancy. There is a pregnancy exposure registry available through Pfizer for abracitinib, but for any of the JAK inhibitors, we really try to avoid use of those medications. I think the other part that you had mentioned was lactation. So after the baby is born, can we consider then those same medications in a breastfeeding mother? So kind of starting in the same order and looking at dupilumab, it's structurally a very large protein. So it's unlikely to pass into breast milk in substantial amounts. The drug past the breastfed infant's GI tract is likely to be destroyed, although we're not really sure of the effects of the GI exposure in that infant. Again, we have some case reports that indicate there were no side effects in breastfed infants. So it sounds like it should be safe, but as always, the recommendation is to weigh the risk benefit of using the medication. We see the exact same recommendation in place for tralokinumab and the same, you know, unlikely passage of that med into breast milk in lactating women. With our JAK inhibitors, we do see excretion of the medication into milk in animal studies. And so for that reason, the recommendation is to avoid use of those drugs while breastfeeding. Thank you. Moving on to our non-pregnant patients. Monica, is it possible to use both a biologic medication and topical rexolitinib for patients who do not achieve their treatment goals on only a biologic medication? Yeah, so we got this question during the mid-year symposium back in December, and I think it's a really great question and consideration. So at a glance, I think this is certainly reasonable. If we have a patient on dupilumab or tralokinumab, 
and we know they're adherent to their medicine. We confirm they're moisturizing on a regular basis and handling triggers as best they can. But if they're still having a, a fair amount of body surface covered in eczema or still having pruritus on a certain part of their body, we, we do want to think about other therapies that can be added on for them. We can also at this time consider switching to an oral JAK inhibitor, but if they aren't interested in an oral JAK inhibitor or if they just aren't a good candidate for one, adding in topical rexalitinib might help them get to their treatment goals and reduce the pruritus. Of course, we don't have any trials looking at this to specifically address this question, but given rexalitinib is applied topically, there shouldn't be any concerns for an interaction with the biologic. When rexalitinib cream first came out, many of our patients on dupilumab that still had a little bit of itch or just weren't quite at treatment goal were prescribed this to take in conjunction and we're having really good results actually. But unfortunately now insurance has kind of picked up and updated and typically won't cover both medications given the high cost of each medicine. However, if your practice site has samples or, you know, if you're able to get samples, that might be a great treatment option for some patients. Thank you. I'm curious, do patients have to be on these medications for life or are the medications something that tend to send the disease into remission? Yeah, so I get this question all the time from patients, probably at least once a week. (laughs) So generally, since atopic dermatitis is more of a chronic long-term condition, patients do need to continue to take these medicines long-term to keep their disease controlled. The medications that we currently have don't really put the disease into remission long-term. And once a medicine is stopped and 99% of it is out of the body, the disease can then pick up again and restart the inflammatory process. So this has actually been looked at in a few studies to kind of make sure, and it's been looked at specifically for dupilumab. So one study was essentially a continuation of the dupilumab phase three trials, and it looked at high-responding patients to dupilumab. It had these patients either keep their dose at every week or every two weeks, that was the trial dose, or adjust them to every four or eight weeks, or completely change them to placebo. So the patients that adjusted to every four or eight weeks did lose some of the progress they had made and all of their outcome scores were reduced and the pruritus came back and the patches of eczema. Unfortunately, the placebo group had the largest loss of control, of course, essentially proving that patients do need to stay on these medications. This has still continued to be looked into. And last year, there was actually a small cohort study out of France It showed that about two-thirds of this patient population in a particular practice were able to space their doses anywhere from three to five weeks without loss of control of their medication. So they did admit that the majority of patients did end up on that every three-week regimen, so a little bit closer to the approved dose of the every two weeks. So in practice, if patients are interested in reducing their frequency or are just I get a lot of patients that are just concerned with taking a medicine long-term. We often let them try spacing their doses out slowly just to kind of see if they're able to. So typically they'll start with trying to space it to every three weeks for a few cycles. If they still do well, they can go to every four weeks and so on. And this is guided by our dermatologists, of course. 
Many patients typically stay around the every three to four week dosing schedule, and a lot of patients aren't able to get past every two weeks. It's kind of a nice tool to ensure long-term adherence since you gave them the chance to space their doses and they kind of were able to see for themselves, you know, what happens when they stop taking their medicine. Additionally, it seems that patients are able to try this. And if it doesn't work, again, they can go back to their every two-week schedule. And right now, from what we can tell, it doesn't seem that starting and stopping dupilumab causes any reduced responsiveness when they do go back to the every two week, since that does happen in some other biologic medications. It doesn't seem to happen as much in dupilumab. Well, that's good news. Well, before we wrap up, Jamie, I'm wondering, are there any medications in the pipeline for atopic dermatitis that are likely to be approved in the near future? Yeah, so there are a couple medications that we are watching that are expected to be approved shortly. Some have been in the pipeline for a little bit. So starting with baricitinib, this was approved in 2018 for rheumatoid arthritis. So that's its current approval in the U.S., but it's currently approved in more than 50 countries, not in the United States, but other countries for the treatment of adults with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis who are candidates for systemic therapy. We saw a new approval for baricitinib last year in the U.S. for alopecia areata, which would be another discussion we'll be having But with regards to atopic dermatitis, we are still waiting. The FDA did issue a complete response letter to the manufacturer in April of 2022, but there was also another one issued previously before that as well. And those were due to concerns. Basically, the FDA said they were unable to approve the application in its current form, specifically the first one they were looking for additional clinical data to determine appropriate dosing. Then also just looking at different safety concerns across treatment arms. So those are being responded to and something that should be approved soon. We also have lebrachizumab. That is currently, uh, well, actually it has a phase three clinical trial. I didn't want to say current, but that was conducted in 2021. The clinical trial was called ADHERE. So this is an interleukin-13 medication, interleukin-13 blocker. And in that study, it was studied every two and four weeks in patients with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. It's given subcutaneously, and it is being studied in ages 12 and above. So the approval for this is likely to occur this year. A BLA was submitted to the FDA in the third quarter of 2022. And what's interesting, based on the studies, there's a potential for an every four-week maintenance dosing based on some of the results in that clinical trial. The third one I wanted to discuss was nemolizumab, which is another interleukin blocker. This one is an interleukin-31 blocker, also given subcutaneously for patients with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis, studied in that same age group, ages 12 and above. The phase three trial was completed at the end of 2022, and the FDA submission should be occurring this year. So those are the three that seem to be the closest coming to market. There was one that was being investigated, but they actually are no longer looking at it. That was brepocitinib. 
And there's two other medications that are in phase two and three trials for FDA approval for chronic hand eczema specifically, which is something that we see the hands being frequently affected in adult patients with atopic dermatitis. And those two medications are gusicidinib and delgocidinib. So they have a more unique position in the atopic dermatitis realm. But I think the first three that I mentioned, so baricidinib, lebricizumab, and nemolizumab are the three to watch. Well, thanks for giving us a sneak peek at what might be coming down the pike. That's all the time we have. I want to thank both Dr. McConaughey and Dr. Dougherty for joining us today. And thank you for joining into this session of Pharmacy Hot Topics. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.